Rebag is a luxury resale marketplace. They have a curated collection of investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry. Each piece is carefully vetted and verified by experts. You can buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Hermes, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com to get 10% off your first purchase with code REBAG10. That's Rebag.com to get 10% off your first purchase with code REBAG10. Betches Media presents Afternoon Tea with host Sammy Sage. Is that what you're saying? Please proceed, Governor. Presented by the Betches Sub Podcast. Better hope there's a lot of girls listening to this with the volume turned down. Your weekly dose of political therapy. Cardi, that's what I've been doing my whole life. And now with this week's guest. Well, there were three of us in this marriage, so it was a bit crowded. Your host, Sammy Sage. Welcome to today's episode of Afternoon Tea, your companion to the morning announcements and weekly political therapy session brought to you by The Betches Sup. Today's guest is Samantha Power, former U.S. ambassador to the U.N. under the Obama administration and best-selling author of her memoir, The Education of an Idealist, which just came out in paperback. Ambassador Power is here with us to share her unique life story as an immigrant, a war correspondent, an activist, and her experience as a diplomat on the world stage. With that, let's get the tea from Samantha. Welcome, Ambassador Power. I am so flattered and thrilled to have you. I have been loving reading your new book. Or no, it's not new, but it is newly out in paperback. And how how was it? How does it feel to put, you know, your life on paper like that? It was an adjustment. There is a, I'm originally Irish. I'm an immigrant to America when I was a kid, when I was nine. And there, I've heard Irish people say that Irish people have trouble using the first person even in therapy. And uh, that was definitely my experience of, it felt very presumptuous and self-indulgent initially to cross that threshold. I'd been a reporter back in the day, always telling other people's stories. I'm really aware having served in the US government and been part of things getting done that anything you do by definition in government is a group effort and everybody has to be kind of rowing in the same direction and so forth. So even to reduce events to my experience of events had the sort of carried the risk of making it look like I was saying I did this without me either. And, and so just getting those tonal things right. And then I did make the choice in part to try to um, appeal to people who don't care about foreign policy or diplomacy or, you know, American its role in the world, but I decided to make it very, very personal and write about, you know, my, family struggle with addiction, my own romantic foibles, the mistakes I've made along the way, the vulnerabilities, laying it out there, fertility challenges, miscarriages, all of that. And I did that because I want uh, to sort of try to meet people where they are and not simply tell a story of this happened in my career, but rather like, what are the insides of each of us as we're navigating work and life and growth. And when I went to write the book and read other books to sort of seek inspiration, a lot of them would just give you that kind of outsider perspective rather than mining their insides. And thus there were fewer points of entry for me. Like I was like, oh, okay, I'm never going to go and do those things that that person described. So what do I have in common with that person? Well, it turns out if you open things up, there are so many universal struggles that we have irrespective of what our professional incarnation is. So so that was the choice. And that then was, whoa, I mean, that went like actually laying out, you know, mistakes I'd made or uh, confessions, making confessions on the page. But I just thought it was in the interest of the larger 
character, really. I mean, in a sense, almost being distant to my own character and trying to make the character as comprehensive, I guess, as, as possible. You know, it is a really, it is a really wonderful book. I I really felt so connected to your story and it felt so human. I mean, obviously, it, it felt so different from, you know, the typical political memoir. And I, I really, I encourage the listeners of this podcast to, to pick it up because it is, there's so much in there and not just in terms of, you know, a career, someone who might be interested in foreign policy, but so much about just like the vulnerabilities of life. And it was, it's really a really wonderful book. So I will say, um, just in preparing for this interview, reading your book, the one word that continuously struck me to describe you is you're very courageous. And I don't think that that's a typical trait that I think of when I think of many people these days. And just for the listeners who you know may not be familiar with all the bullet points of your career, I mean, you started reporting from war zones in in Bosnia, Kosovo, Rwanda, and then I mean, even the the going into diplomacy, which was very male dominated, and then you know actively using that position to stand up to atrocities and having that be your focus. So I'm just wondering, where do you draw that courage from? Well, let me give two answers. One is. Uh, to, is it your last name? Yeah, yeah right. Uh, that was that was an early uh, endowment, let's say. But no, one of my answers is I don't actually think I'm that courageous. So I want to I want to start there, and then to the degree that I take risks, I think it's all about my mother, <laughs> no question. Uh, just um, so so. Let me start there and just describe her a little bit. She so she grew up in the daughter of a policeman in Cork City, Cork, uh, in Ireland, and one of six kids wanted desperately to be a doctor. G- girls were not encouraged to do science or do medicine, and she was steered away from it, and they didn't have a lot of money, and it was sort of felt out of reach. And yet in her mid-20s, she could stand it no longer, and she just bucked everything and, and went to medical school. And she's now in her mid-70s practicing at Mount Sinai in New York, uh, even through the COVID uh, pandemic. But then her marriage with my, my dad, uh, who was wonderful to me, but unfortunately had a drinking problem, her marriage to him collapsed. She met somebody in Ireland she wanted to be with, thought she could build a new life with, but there was no divorce in Ireland. So the combination of wanting to sort of progress in terms of her medical career and wanting to run away with this guy who she hardly knew caused her to come to America and bring my younger brother and me. And to get us to be able to come to America, she had to actually go through the Irish court system because all you think it was bad here in the 70s with the with the Catholic Church, so influential and, and such conservative traditions uh, really prevailing. It was really hard for her to get custody of my brother and me, even though my dad was an, was an alcoholic. And um, But she did it. She got the custody. She brought us over here. And she just has followed her heart and her gut uh, her whole career. So so I think to the degree that I take risks, it's, it's because I've had this person in my life from birth who just, um, you know, really does a great job. I think listening to what's deep in her, it's it kind of almost, she never uses this expression. It's almost I can't not, you know, this idea that there's just something in me is sort of an, um, an impulse or an imperative or some, something of that nature. Now, the reason, though, I, I, just to encourage people, because I think bravery is another just it's it, it sort of abstract, right, when it attaches to somebody else. And, and I personally, I think I'm like a lot of people and I don't feel brave. 
And when, when I went to write The Education of an Idealist, what I learned about myself really only retrospectively was that at every critical career juncture that would subsequently, you're right, kind of look brave and brazen even, I rationalized it in with this thing that I've come to call the X test, where I say to myself, okay, I'm just graduated from college, been out a year. I really want to get over to the Balkans, the former Yugoslavia. I want to help people. I've been, it's a longer story, but I've been moved by what's happening there. I don't have any skills, maybe, but I was a sports reporter in college. Maybe I should go be a journalist, right? So, so that's like a brave thought. But ultimately, the only way I was able to get over that threshold and take that risk is that I met a bunch of young female journalists one of which is still my closest friend, Laura Pitter. And she was freelancing for Time Magazine. She was their so-called stringer. And she's like, come, you can totally do this. And she put her name and her email address. There was then a thing called CompuServe. <laughs> and the internet had kind of just gotten going. This is how long ago it was. And like, I still have this coaster with her name and her CompuServe email address where she's like, you can do this, you know, come. So part of it is like, I've gotten that encouragement from my mother, from people who would go on to become my friends, my colleagues. But part of it is that I rationalized and I said, okay, if I tell myself I'm like going to become a war correspondent, the risk of humiliation apart from death is, is so great. I'm not sure what I waited more, probably humiliation because young people are notoriously discount the, the possibility of injury and harm. And so I said to myself instead, like if all I get out of this, even if I fail as a journalist, like if all I get out of this is, I learn the language, or I get to watch the United Nations in action, or I, I learn about what careers are out there if you want to try to make a difference, in it, then it'll be worth it. And so, and I went over and I, and I, oh, by the way, I also rationalized and said, and I won't go to the war zone. In fact, I promised my mother, I won't go into <laughs> Bosnia. I live in Croatia, which has now been through its war. And I'll report, I'll talk to refugees who come out. And, and that's how I started. So I sort of broke the seal by lowering the goalposts a little bit and by, reducing the barriers of, of, of embarrassment, you know, where, where it was, I could define success in a way that I thought I could maybe cross that threshold. Later, when I, I, I you know, went to Bosnia, lived there for a couple of years, went to law school, ended up writing a book in law school, taking time off in law school to write a book. And I met Barack Obama. Barack Obama read my, my first book, A Problem from Hell, about America. A little known man, Barack Obama. <laughs> a little a little known man. Well, he was a well-known man at the time, but not certainly not close to being president. He had just been elected to the U.S. Senate. And it was in that year where he exploded into prominence. And when I met him, I felt I want to work with this person. And I asked him, I said, you know, there's rumors that you might run for president. He's like, I just got to the Senate. What are you talking about? I'm not going to run for president. So I said, okay. I said, I'm sitting here and my thought bubble having dinner with this person is I want to go work for him. I want to go work for him. But I just finally got a, like a proper job. I was teaching at Harvard. I was running a human rights center. My mother was so happy because I finally had health insurance. And here I was like, I want to leave what I'm doing. I want to go work with this man. And so again, it was brave. I, I blurted out, I want to come work for you. And he could have said, what? Like, what the hell? Why would I need a genocide scholar, you know, on my, but I said, you know, I said, I can, I can just volunteer. I don't need to take a staff position. You know, I was very sort of self-deprecating and everything. He was like, well, if it's free and you're available, sure. And I was like, oh yeah, you know, I was thinking about doing this anyway, which was not entirely true. 
But then I, people start saying, that's crazy. You're leaving a full-time job for basically this volunteer thing, a kind of quasi fellowship. And I said to myself, the X test, right? If all I get out of this, you know, there's the, the maximalist thing is that you, you have some bond with Barack Obama and then eventually he gets to go on to bigger things and you get to influence his thinking at a very formative stage. So he may go and do some things on human rights or on preventing genocide and atrocities. Like that's the high class utopian version of how this works out. But in order to actually take the plunge and tear up your life and go and move to a different city and, and, you know, break the bonds of friendship and break your lease and all those things, sometimes you just need to define things in a much more modest way. So I just said to myself, okay, if all that out, because I'll go on a leave, I won't take a full permanent rupture. Not, this is of course my privilege to be able to have secured that, but I'll rationalize and I'll say, okay, if all I get out of this is I learn how the Senate works and get to learn something more than I do about domestic politics. I mean, here's this guy who's clearly cracked the code because he's just broken through in this way. And maybe even I hear he's a good public speaker. Like maybe I can learn something about how to be a better speaker in, you know, uh, to bigger audiences or get more comfortable in those. Well, dang, you know, that would be worth it. That's like a graduate school for three things. And at least I'm not paying for it, right? Even if I'm not getting paid my, myself in some real way. So my sort of encouragement, I guess, for people is that I think if you make bravery the threshold or if it like feels like you're doing something so bold, there are very few of us who will take that leap. But if you can kind of skinny it down a little bit and turn it into something where I think it's almost like the growth mindset where it's if, if all things kind of don't go the way I plan what's the minimal thing that I'm going to take away from this where I, I can look back and say, okay, I'm, I'm glad I did that, or at least I got this out of it. And I think that really can set you on your way. And I, everyone, I've only given you a couple of examples. When I, when I look back in order to write the book, I realized I was doing that every time, right? I wasn't making this grand statement, uh, you know, about my, my faith in myself and my ability to do world changing things. It was, much more of an incursion. That's a really, I think that's a really great lesson. I mean, you know, your your story is obviously one where those those risks or those small moves paid off. Um, but I think that is a really great lesson for you know people who might be dealing with kind of those those questions or those risks on you know whatever it is for them. Hey, American Fever Dream listeners, I'm here to tell you that there is no reason to panic the next time you are searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone on any occasion. Now it's easier to find gifts made by independent sellers for all of the people in your life, like the pickleballers, I know plenty of those, the jazz fan, the artist, the pasta lover, whatever niche interest they have, you can find an incredible gift on Etsy. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality TV and gaming, there is something for everyone. There is so much pressure around gifting. I usually have a hard time thinking of gift ideas specifically for my dad, but my dad loves flying. He loves airplanes. He loves aviation, and he never gets sick of a cute little gift that has a reference to that. And the inventory for that on Etsy is incredible. I hope my dad lives for 200 years because I can get him a birthday present related to aviation or planes from Etsy for every single one of them, if not hundreds and hundreds of years more. There really is that much. A gifting moment is always around the corner, but whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode on Etsy now. 
And just speaking to that, we, you know, this podcast has a lot of female listeners, many of whom face challenges that you, you know, like you have working in male dominated fields. Can you tell us specifically if anyone or anything that really helped you manage your way, especially when, you know, dealing with foreign actors who in some of these countries, women are literally considered second class citizens by law. And, you know, you are now the one negotiating with them. How do you kind of handle those situations? Well, let me start in the White House, actually, in the domestic context, and then and then get to the international where you're absolutely right about some of my interlocutors. So what was interesting was working at the White House on the National Security Council. This was in Obama's first term. I was his human rights advisor. That was the dominated environment I'd ever worked in. And it would be a good preview of the four years I would spend as UN ambassador, which was massively male dominated in New York at the UN, uh, in part because so many countries just send men to represent themselves uh, in on the global stage. But the the real kind of culture shock to me came at the at the White House because it was my first time. And there, I think what and again, I think there's a universal in this. I, what was so striking to me was was how quickly my sense of confidence, my sense of self even uh, revealed itself to be very fragile (laughs) in that environment. You know, when I would make recommendations for how we might proceed, you know, let's say to cut off military assistance to some government that was doing terrible things to its people. And my recommendation would not get embraced by my peers, right? I would just think, you know, I stink, right? Here I am, I'm the president's human rights advisor. I've got an agenda here on this particular issue. And I just clearly, I'm new to government. I'd never worked in the executive branch before, you know, getting, figuring out how the paper moves and what the lingua franca is and sort of how you're effective is its own skill set. And I was only acquiring it, but I just thought, here I am, I'm a novice and these issues are so important and I'm, I'm not doing them justice. And I, that was my, my, my Cass, my husband and I, uh, I'd met Cass on the Obama campaign just a f- few months, less than a year before we actually uh, ended up going into government together. And Cass and I would leave the White House and he d- invented this taxonomy where we would define the day as to whether we had been respected or not respected, effective or not effective. And basically every day we'd walk out and be like, not respected, not effective, <laughs> you know? And then, and then this colleague of mine, Liz Sherwood Randall, who was just named not long ago, uh, President Biden's Homeland Security Advisor. She was then in charge of Europe policy for the National Security Council. She summoned the six women who worked on the NSC staff at that time out of 26 so-called senior directors, so the, the kind of you know mid to high level staff on the, in the national security world. And she summoned us to her office on a Wednesday night, I'll never forget it. And she's like, we're gonna talk. How are you doing? How's everybody doing? Uh, and there's a bottle of red wine, some cheese and crackers. I don't know how the hell she got out of the office. You should know that we work at the National Security Council. You work in a large safe. So to go into her office or my office for that matter, you have to kind of twirl the dial, you know, as if you're in some heist movie or something. So you go in, you twirl the dial, you get in there, and then there's like a bottle of wine and, and crackers and cheese. And we're all so busy and the world is on fire, it feels like. And she asks this question and we go around, we each do different things. One person works on nonproliferation, one works on counterterrorism, I work on human rights. 
and everybody's got a version of the same story. And all of us, our lived experience was that we were somehow not optimizing, that we were not doing justice to our agendas. And that was partly true. I mean, in my case, for sure it was true. But in hearing the other women, there were a set of group dynamics that had nothing to do with any one of us specifically. It had to do with just, for lack of a better expression, we didn't, wouldn't have used the term at the time, but unconscious bias, the ways in which, you know, even clickiness can kind of kick in at an early stage. And by hearing other women and their experiences, it just gave me, it, 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 it gave me such a different perspective on, you know, sort of like a romance, you know, what's me and what's you, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, okay, I'm going to own my shit here, but there's some other dynamics afoot. And it also meant that going forth, we ended up meeting pretty much every week, at least that we were in town uh, on Wednesday night in the same safe. Uh, and again, there'd be emergencies and things would get pushed back, but by and large, this became a regular time together where we could share our aspirations, share our successes. There was nothing like that in the Washington work culture where you kind of come to, you know, not, not, nothing built in at least. You have to carve it out yourself. So that I learned so much from Liz because I, even as I, I remember like trudging down the hall to that first session, her, I was like, oh, I don't have time for this. What the hell are we doing? You know, we got work to do. The last thing I need to do is take an hour out of my schedule and I'm as ineffective as I am to begin with. But it was a turning point in my time in government. And I, it, I carried this lesson of the Wednesday group and the solidarity that came with that to New York when I became UN ambassador. And my predecessor in that job many years before had been Madeleine Albright, who would later go on to become the first ever American female secretary of state. And Madeleine, when she was in the job back in 1993, had created something called the G7, Girl 7 bringing together the seven female ambassadors to the UN out of 183 countries back then. And when I got there, there were 37 female ambassadors. So we created the G37 and it was predicated entirely on the Wednesday group logic, which is that and it was 37 female ambassadors out of 193 countries, right? So I will say, last thing I'll say is that as America, because you asked the question about culture and about what, what many of my male interlocutors were bringing from their own countries, because I was the host, America was the host country to the UN, the, the superpower, the largest donor uh, to the UN and to so many causes around the world. Um, I, I didn't experience what my female counterparts experienced. I mean, how is even someone from a patriarchal society really going to talk down in those ways to the American ambassador. I, but I would see it from my, my colleagues from smaller countries, from less powerful countries. And that was the whole idea of that solidarity in a way, you know, they were like, it was like, who was the equivalent to the human rights advisor, right? Someone who's not going to have necessarily the easiest job to begin with representing a small country with, with a low budget and, you know, a tiny staff. I mean, some of these missions had like two people working for them and how can I use my platform and my convening power and, you know, use my residence and sort of host sessions where we can come together and feel emboldened to stand up for one another and to know what's us, what's them. You know, that's, that's so interesting when you realize it's a, it's not me, it's you. Cause I also had, you know, I've been, I've been running this company for 10 years now. Um, and I, since I was in college and I remember like a few years ago, I had that moment where I was like, Oh, everywhere I've, I've ended up 
is a sort of a reflection of kind of bigger forces. Like I, I can see my like myself and you know our company even in the context of inequality in some ways, and it, it's a, it is interesting to sort of finally realize that it's not all you, and that there are bigger picture forces that position you where you are. But seeing it from only your perspective, it's it's hard to come to that conclusion as soon as you know it might be helpful to. I would love to talk about your career in foreign policy, especially working on human rights. What would you say is the most complex or taxing emotionally issue you've dealt with? And how do you guard your mental health, you know, against, you know, really some very challenging, some of the worst things that humanity has to offer in some ways? I guess, so the foundational experience for me was graduating from college. I had an internship right out of college, to your point, a great opportunity right from the start that other people uh, did not have at their disposal because I went to a university where the internship program was recruiting, whereas if I'd gone to another university, I wouldn't have been so lucky. So completely agree with what you, you said about how many red carpets you're not even seeing or can be rolled out for you that make your path possible where, where others um you know, are fighting brambles and, and uh, thorns and so forth to get to, to even, you know, uh, point A. Uh, so this internship program proved, proved pivotal. And I was working for somebody who'd, who'd been an ambassador in the U.S. government and in Turkey and in Thailand. And he'd been involved in helping the Kurds in northern Iraq back in the 90s and uh, earlier than that, helping Cambodian and Vietnamese refugees. So he'd been in the government. He'd used the tools of America to make a difference. He was a great mentor to me, is a great mentor to me. His name is Mort Abramowitz. And I was just like his coffee pour, you know, classic internship right out of college. But he was consumed with the war that was happening in Bosnia. And, I, you know, I'd like to think that I would have become consumed on my own, but I, that proposition was not tested. I was I wanted to be the straight A student and, and be a good intern. And so I learned what I needed to learn in order to give him what I thought he needed just as his helper. And, of course, once I learned and this is another one of those threshold questions, uh, you know, often people turn away because they feel there's nothing they can do. And it's, it's depressing enough to see bad things happen in the world, but it's, you know, exponentially more depressing if you feel passive in the face of that, because you can't find a path to make a difference. Well, here I was lucky because I was working for somebody who, even though he was outside the government, he acted every day, like he could use his pressure to change the U S government's, um, attitude toward this horrific conflict where there was ethnic cleansing, there were rape camps. I mean, it's really um, brutal. And I was working for him. So I sort of learned from him that kind of constructive spirit, but because he had the constructive spirit, I wasn't afraid. I didn't feel the need to look away. And again, I had a career incentive to look at. And then in looking at, I became just my, my normal obsessive personality took over. And I just, it was, I, you know, I, there was, no detail too obscure. I was so interested, even obsessed, I think I'd say in, in my early twenties. And so at the end of my time with him, I did make the decision encouraged by some young journalists that I met to go over into to the former Yugoslavia and to report on the conflict. I frankly would have gone and worked for a humanitarian organization if anybody had been willing to have me. I, I just didn't have any skills of that nature. So I tried to fashion an argument that my sports journalism career equipped me uh, to to write about this conflict that was um, 
tearing up uh, Southeastern Europe. So I went over there and you asked about just the most emotional. I mean, just partly because I was so young, partly because it was the Cold War had just ended and there was such hope. It's so different from the current moment, right? With with climate change and the rise of China and human rights and democracy really struggling in America as well as all around the world. There, there was such promise. And yet here was this raging inferno in the heart of Europe. So, but to see it and to see people who look like, you know, me and you and who uh, listened to the same music and who wore the same blue jeans and who, you know, it was very sort of simplistic and very sort of developed world mentality, but I'm just confessing my, I'm sure my biases, you know, at that age of just, you know, if it can happen here, it can happen anywhere. And, and I now, you know, I think we've had some reminders of that lately in America, just how, how fragile our own experiment, democratic experiment is, but it, it just, I was, I was so impressionable and I, and I carried with me the idea of never again, uh, which was, in my generation, especially, um, you know, I would have graduated from high school in like the late 1980s, graduated in college in the early 90s, and the, the the Holocaust Museum had just gone up, just was going up on the mall in Washington. Uh, I'd read, of course, Anne Frank and Elie Wiesel and these really foundational books, and suddenly there were concentration camps in Europe in the 1990s. It was crazy. I, I just couldn't believe they were different. It wasn't death camps in quite the same way, but people were being executed and and so I, that was searing. And, and because I would end up living in Sarajevo and, and have the experience of, of, you know, visiting families whose kids had been yeah, killed, jumping rope in playgrounds or shelled or, and, and just to live among them, I think that's had the greatest effect of any uh, professional experience of my life by, by far. But then flash forward, I'm UN ambassador. I'm in the president, President Obama's cabinet. In I, I start that job in 2013. The war in Syria is raging. Um, you know the the same moral commitments and strategic sort of perspective that I would have had in my 20s. It, it was nascent, but I I still had. I'm the same person, right? I've learned. I've grown. I've learned about other parts of the world for sure. But this imperative to do, to open your toolbox to see what tools you can deploy to curb atrocities—that was why Obama wanted me in his government. That was why he had me to dinner that first time. That's why I went and worked in his office. And that here I find myself in the U.S. government, not writing stories to try to capture the attention of people in the government, but in a position to try to influence the president of the United States. And so this was searing in a different way. I had the the kind of luxury of outrage, you might say, when I was a journalist, and so many journalists did, it wasn't just me, of just how can the policymakers not, you know, be doing more? And then I found myself in the room where it happens, as it were, and, you know, making a set of proposals, some of which were heated, like and taking more refugees to this country, the kinds of things we didn't do in the Second World War that we regret. Uh, but we, even that we were slow to do and, and could have done more on, you know, getting more humanitarian aid dispatch for sure, negotiating with the Russian ambassador who vetoed much of anything, but to try to deter chemical weapons use and, and disable serious chemical weapons. There were things I did, but by and large, there's no way to look at our 
impact on conflict and feel good about. Hundred thousand people died, and there were you know mass actions in prisons, and it really shows the limits of the toolbox. I mean, Barack Obama was not going to go and make war again in the Middle East. There was no evidence that that had worked. <laughs> or uh, you know, done much for US security or US values. And so I just, that was different in the sense that I was, I suppose, putting my money where my mouth is, was I, I was in the room, I was trying to secure influence on behalf of vulnerable people, but uh, I was not as effective. We as a, as a country also were not as effective as, as we tried to be and, and it was heartbreaking. And how did I insulate myself from that? I don't think you do. I mean, I think if you, there's some, you know, you have to function. I had, in addition to working on Syria, there were, I was promoting LGBTQ rights and we were making huge inroads and strides there. I was getting political, female political prisoners out of jail. I was helping build an anti-Ebola coalition that would end up bringing the epidemic to an end. So there were, you can kind of, if you're lucky as a, as a person with lots of responsibilities you're able where you're not able to be effective in one area or make the impact you seek from a humanitarian standpoint, there are places you can still uh, hopefully play a role in saving lives or supporting Obama's efforts to save lives. So that's certainly why I, I stayed, but I do grapple in the book, even with the recalls for my resignation, the wall street journal, the Washington post, others saying, you know, she's a hypocrite. She wrote so powerfully when she was on the outside and here she is. And you know, I, I, I do think it's important not to rationalize uh, staying. You know, I do there. I think you do have to ask yourself, am I doing more good than harm? So the main thing I did is I hugged my kids extra tight late, late at night, knowing how privileged I was to be able to be safe with them and, and, and you know, imagining what it'd be like to be a parent in a circumstance like Syria. But by and large, my way of kind of living with that cloud, which was nothing like living in Syria and being a Syrian, but was to just try to harness whatever sense of responsibility or failure I felt toward doing something constructive, whether within the Syria you know, conflict or, or on these other issues. I'm Betch's co-founder, Jordana Abraham, and this episode is brought to you by Instacart. Your fever is high and the pressure to log in at work is too. But when you finally decide to take care of you, there's Instacart. Just because that one perfect coworker of yours is attending all meetings, camera on, while she's sneezing, coughing, aching, doesn't mean you have to do the same. Take it from us, trying to stay on top of things will only get you further behind. Instead, get everything from tissues to tea to cough suppressants and comforting soups delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. If anyone needs anything, they can just redirect their questions to that one perfect coworker of yours. So your book is titled At The Education of an Idealist. But I wonder when you see all these things continuously and it, you know, it almost becomes abstract when you when you talk about some of these things. What is your view on human nature? Like I, I have to ask, you know, someone who's seen all of this, what do you think of people? That's deep, sister. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that the most dangerous and distorting driver of bad things is fear. So I have interviewed perpetrators of the worst crimes and the alibi 
for doing the most horrific things that they inevitably had was being afraid, was some version of kill or be killed. And I think we see this with our polarization in this country. And, and as we kind of, you know, kind of duck into our corners and become more divided by our political affiliations and so forth, a lot of it is, you know, the other party will do this set of things. And, and some of the conspiracy theories that are getting traction, they're, they're rooted in fear, you know, someone's coming to get you. And that is so radicalizing. So that's the bad news. But in that is hope, right? Because it's not, it's, you know, no, at least I did not ever come across somebody who, um, you know, was sort of reveling in the prospect of destroying some other group or community. Uh, the effects were the same. So don't get me wrong. I mean, the, you know, these are people that should be locked up for, for generations um, and, and, you know, and, and the impunity they feel is, is a big part of the problem, but, um, but it was always abetted by the, you know, having been propagandized, having this misinformation just pumped into their minds. So that's where we have to do better in figuring out, you know, how to reach people with facts and truth. And, and this is, as you know, something that we're now grappling with in, in so many domains. And we have to give young people the ability to discern fact from fic fiction. I mean, I'm having the experience now, my son is 11 and he's just discovered that I have a public profile. Uh, you know, he knew it when I was UN ambassador, but, uh, but he's now, you know, watches YouTube videos and does things and, if I've done a video for something, you know, he'll see way more thumbs down than thumbs up. He's like, who are these? And they, he's like, mommy, the things they say about you. And, and then, you know, they said you did this. I'm like, son, let me tell you about misinformation. Right. You know, and let me tell you the things that I'm not, you know, that, that are not good that they could legitimately say, but this is all made up and I'm, and I'm sorry to break it to you, or I'm happy to break it to you. So so, you know, how do our young people learn? They're just on YouTube. It's, you know, what they're reading in school, they're told to believe by and large. And then later in life, they get their critical faculties. You know, it took me a long while to know that just because I was reading something didn't mean it was automatically something that had happened or was true, right? It's, it's, uh, it's something we can't take for granted, but we need to build out those muscles, even within democracies, especially when we have kind of no umpires and no fact checkers in our, in our media environment in the way that we might have when I was, when I was coming of age. Um, and then the, the question of just how do we get out of our silos? And I'm, I'm saying this now in a more general sense, because even though we in America haven't uh, fallen prey to the, the demons of the Balkans, um, you know, again, we, we've seen uh, how radicalizing misinformation can be and we should learn before it gets to that place, right? Before uh, more lives are lost and and things really get out of hand. So, so I think that that's what is my view of human nature. It's that we are we are the each um, capable of of things that we don't think we're capable of. Um, if we feel afraid for our our families, uh, for for the people and the uh, the people we love most, I think I think that can happen and. There's plenty we can do to build up our antibodies, um, but I think 
fundamentally it's not. I don't believe we're out to get and out that we're all hunters and gatherers seeing everyone as I think there's I've seen tremendous resilience and goodness with nothing, people with nothing in these conflict situations. I mean, the inspiring altruism and other regardingness, it just puts, just, just makes me feel, oh my God, I'm not worthy of the, you know, and, and so all of that coexists. And in a way, these extreme, it's what we're seeing with the pandemic, these extreme events and circumstances make people bunker down and be fearful and kind of take what's theirs or what they think is theirs, but also brings out such generosity and, and um, solidarity in people. And so I, I, I think people are fundamentally, you know, the, it's the, what Lincoln talked about, you know, the battle for our better angels, you know, the better angels are there and it's a question of, you know, how can we find them in ourselves? That's, you know, that's a really valuable perspective from, you know, you've definitely seen a lot. I feel like I can't go back to another policy question now, but um, so we should definitely. You went deep. I didn't. Yeah. Deep. Honestly, like I you know I have if I'm going to be talking to someone who, you know, has seen so much, that's what the people want to know. You know, they can get the uh, they can get some other information elsewhere, but this is quite an opportunity. So thank you for sharing all that. So we're going to move on to the four questions, which is something I ask all of my guests the same four questions. This is really intended to be a little bit more of like a political therapy session than, you know, like a policy session because, you know, that's out there. But um, getting to know the, the human beings who are behind our diplomatic political media situations is so important. Hey there, overwhelmed foodies. Are you drowning in a sea of meal kit options, feeling like you're in a bad dating game where every contestant looks the same, with the same fish picture? Fear not, because amidst the chaos, there's one shining star worth your culinary affection. Home Chef is not just another fish in the meal kit sea. They're the gourmet catch that you've been dreaming of. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes, conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. Whether you prefer classic meal kits with pre-portioned ingredients and easy instructions, speedy recipes ready in less than 30 minutes, oven-ready kits with pre-chopped ingredients, or quick microwave meals that assemble in minutes, Home Chef has you and the entire family covered for delicious meals without the hassle. Home Chef has over 30 options a week, and they serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it is economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. So for a limited time, Home Chef is offering our listeners 18 free meals plus free shipping on your first box and free dessert for life at homechef.com slash feverdream. That's homechef.com slash feverdream for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. Homechef.com slash feverdream. You must be an active subscriber to receive free dessert. So with that, the four questions. <laughs> so our first question is, what is your happiest memory? My happiest memory is marrying my husband, Cass Sunstein, on, you might call it a cliff in the west of Ireland, in the stormiest, wettest Irish day you could ever imagine, you know, the exact opposite of what you'd wish for your wedding day. Um, the, the village in which we got married just outside Waterville, County Kerry, uh, was where I spent large chunks of my summers as a child. My aunt and uncle, my mother's sister and, and her husband were the town doctors in this really rural area. Um, 
and to go quote unquote home to go back to Ireland to get married. When I first told Cass that when he when he he, he proposed really not that long after we had started dating. So if he was going to be crazy and propose that early, I was going to be crazy. And how long? How long did he take? He basically three months, which. Which I thought you were going to say three weeks. No, no, no. He told his best friend, I think after, I think it was three, two or three weeks, he told his best friend, you know, that he was going to propose and he got a ring, a ring that was like 19 sizes too big because he has no sense of things. But, uh, but he went and got a ring and carried it around for weeks and weeks and weeks waiting uh, for the moment. And with his friends say, don't do it. Don't do it. You're crazy. Don't. Anyway, when you know, you know. He, he, I know. I took me, I had to ripen a little bit, but in three months, I, I certainly left it the chance. But but for Cass, who, you know, for him to go across town, like he basically feels he needs a visa. And, and, and uh, you know, for him to get married on this cliff in Ireland, I mean, just, it was also just a, a testament to, to his love. But with... We had um, these two local girls uh, singing as I as I came down the aisle. Cat Stevens' "Morning Has Broken," which was my dad's favorite song. I used to play it on the piano. My dad died when I was really young, and it was just seeing my mother's family, my father's family, my friends from Bosnia, my friends from the Obama campaign. You know, it's just a convergence. I think the best the best weddings where you just look out and you and you see conversations happening between people that, you know, it's like its own match.com among your friends. And then the fact that it was just storming and everybody was drenched and the wedding papers, you know, were like flying through the air and cast was going after them saying, you know, I'm not going to let this go. It was, it just was a day for the ages. Are there any pictures of this on Google? Yes. Yes. Okay. I'm, I'm going to Google that app. Yes. That sounds beautiful and very unique. Okay, our second question is, if you could go on vacation with any two people, dead or alive, who would they be and where would you go? So the list is so long. This was really hard. But I would say Eleanor Roosevelt and Leonard Cohen. So don't you think the conversation between Eleanor Roosevelt and Leonard Cohen, I can't even. So Eleanor, of course, FDR's uh, wife uh, and somebody who pushed him to see the human consequences of the decisions that he made you know he he and she both had grew grown up in very rarefied uh circumstances but her getting out of the family bubble and then the white house bubble and just meeting with workers and people affected by the great depression promoting social and economic rights she ended up uh being the chairperson of the committee that drafted the universal declaration of human rights which is the gold standard uh, for human rights, and it includes both civil and political rights and economic and social rights, and, and you know, with inequality growing all around the world today, just to hear her thoughts on on how you bring those those two kind of buckets of rights together and what sort of policy, I don't mean to be such a nerd, but what policies no, and programs you can think about. this is a podcast for nerds. Okay, so okay, we can nerd, nerd out here, <laughs> yeah. but just, just, you know, here we are. It's like the, the it's like the economy domestically and globally really have been hit by a meteorite. And uh, so we need really creative thinking, but that puts human dignity, individual dignity at the, at the heart of things. And then Leonard Cohen, of course, who passed away a couple of years ago, 
you know, I did the best way to think about his poetry, which he was a poet as well as a songwriter, but his, his best poems, I think, ended up in his songs. But uh, there is a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. You know, just that sense yeah. of amid the brokenness, you know, having that twinkle and, you know, finding those human connections. So those are my two. I don't know, again, what the conversation would be like between them, but I would do my best to facilitate. And, you know, I was thinking like, what would be the place? I mean, I could say County Cary, which is still my favorite, certainly place to to visit and now take my kids and make sure they feel that Irish connection. But uh, since I'm having to move to Washington now again and leave my home in Concord, Massachusetts, I'm actually going to say Walden Pond, which is here in Concord. And, you know, of course, it's been written about and, and here in Concord, you had Emerson and Thoreau and, and the Alcotts and, you know, such great literary creations. But there is still a sense at Walden of just a great tranquility, even though it's a tourist site. And so maybe just to go on a walk around Walden Pond with Eleanor Roosevelt and Leonard Cohen, I think that'd be a hell of a way to spend an afternoon. And if we get a week, you know, we could do weeks of walks and it would get even richer, I bet, with time. Well, in this hypothetical, you can you can go as long as you want. Okay, well, you know, I got a job yeah. to do. So there's some things happening in the world. So I, it can't be infinite, <laughs> but uh, maybe it could be a pit stop, uh, you know, every weekend or something. Yeah. Okay, third question. What are you terrible at and should never be trusted with? Okay, so um, a couple answers here. So I am very athletic. I mean, like I love sports. I love balls. Uh, just a very small thing before I get to the bigger thing is I cannot throw a spiral. And no matter oh. what happens, um, I, I, I can do all kinds of things. Even with a baseball, I can make balls do interesting things. I, I cannot throw a football. I cannot. But but that just seems too petty to, to count. So, and the other thing I what I would have said if we had talked pre-pandemic is I would have said cooking, which I'm sure a lot of your guests uh, say, um, what has had to happen, um, necessity is the mother of invention. So I have learned to cook during the pandemic. Um, and I mean, cook, I would put in, in quotes, I would even maybe it's even there's even a different word. Prepare. Coke, co like, like C-O-K-E yeah. or something like something that isn't <laughs> quite cook. But I cut out, I, I'm a reader of the hard copy of the New York Times. I'm like, just very, I can't do anything without a recipe. Enough, that has not changed. I have our cookboards, you know, the, or chopping boards, which of course I had never used before the pandemic, uh, are the rubber kind rather than the wooden kind. Yes. And we had five. It was like one of those sets somebody must have given us at some point. And um, three of them no longer exist because they, I forgot that you can't use a rubber chopping board next to a, a ring on a stove that gets hot because it, the rubber <laughs> on the cooking. Yes. Anyway, so we now have two chopping boards, the two smaller ones we have, but the big ones have been, but over time, you know, I, I think the, the, the cooking quality is still the same. It's, it's very low, uh, but recipes are recipes. You can, you know, even a stop clock is right twice a day. Uh, so I, I can, during the week, there'd be a couple that my, my family uh, can eat, but it's more that, the stress I used to feel it just the about timing and about, I mean, God forbid, like in this time where we're supposed to be showing solidarity to our loved ones, 
did anybody come into the kitchen and try to have a conversation with me when I'm trying to this damn and like mixing up teaspoons and tablespoons? I mean, for those of you who know how to cook, you don't know how much you're taking for granted in what you know how to do. So I still suck basically, but I've, I definitely would get, I'd give myself a, an A for improvement, most improved player. Okay. I mean, I'm sure that all, you know, those of us who do know how to cook probably could not negotiate patiently or sufficiently with, you know, at the UN. I'll, I'll, I'll leave you with that misapprehension. Yes, I will. I will <laughs> let you believe that there is something that I could do that you can't do. But I'm telling you, now that I know what cooking is, if you could do that, I think you could do anything. Uh, okay, we'll see. <laughs> I can't cook. I can't throw a spiral. So <laughs> I'm with you on that. Okay, last question. If you could solve any of the world's problems instantaneously, which would it be? I'm so torn here between two things, climate and truth. They're related. But I think because to solve climate, we have to get back to fact-based deliberations. You know, then we can have reasonable disagreements about what to do or about how to balance you know, economic this and, and jobs with the urgent uh, existential need for climate progress. But I think the foundation for that has to be a shared factual basis. So, so to, to end, I mean, they're, they're, you're going to have reasonable views and where there'll be differences in interpretation and so forth and people they're close as hell you know, spiritual beliefs and so forth, maybe may inflect kind of how they see what's happening around them. But somehow to to get back to a world where where people are not taking advantage of social media echo chambers and other things to willfully spread lies and misinformation, I think, where we can just get back to the good old fashioned you know, disagreements and inflected viewpoints by virtue of our life experiences, I think then we'd be in a position to, to address inequality, to solve climate uh, and bring countries together to do so, to prepare for pandemics, to, you know, invest in our education system at a scale we haven't done before to deal with God knows the systemic racial injustice that has been allowed to, to fester for too long. So it feels like truth I don't know exactly. I mean, that's this has been a, a question that's been with us from the beginning of time, but but just somehow where truth and facts uh, prevail. You know, I like I like to uh, try to predict what the person I'm interviewing oh. will say for these questions, and you know, I came in being like, I assume she'll say genocide since that's that's been her whole career. Well, but as facts. we were talking, right? As we were talking, I sort of you know, caught on that that is, you know, that you might say that because it is sort of the basis of all of these, of exactly. a lot of these problems. And you could argue all of them. Well, thank you so much, Ambassador Power. This was a really incredible conversation. And I really encourage our audience, our listeners to pick up your new paperback book. And I really appreciate you taking your time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sammy. Tremendous questions. Uh, deeper than I was intending to go this week. So thank you for this month oh, or maybe this oh. year. Thank you. You know, I hope I maintain the mantle of your most deep conversation or at least your most deep interview of 2021. <laughs> yeah. Please come back okay, and let us know. Wonderful. So far, so good. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sammy. 
Thank you for listening to today's Afternoon Tea. If you're enjoying this podcast, you can help us grow by heading over to the feed on iTunes to rate, review, and subscribe, or follow if you're listening on Spotify. Until next Friday, I'm Sammy Sage, and this has been your political therapy session. Afternoon Tea is brought to you by The Betches Sup. Our producers are Sean Kilby, Jorge Morales, Stacey Wong, and Nicole Pellegrino. Social media by Amanda Duberman. Artwork by Brittany Levine. Our editor is Stacey Wong. Be sure to follow Morning Announcements on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts so you never miss a morning news update. Betches.